0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, my colleagues Brian Ballow, Joanne Freeman, Nathan Conley, and I are all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. We're going to start today in Springfield, Illinois. It's summer's end, 1859, and jury members are being selected for a murder case. Peachy Quinn Harrison, just 22 years old, is on trial for the murder of Greek Crafton, stabbed after an altercation in a local drugstore.
1: The different lawyers took turns questioning prospects. Do you know the defendant or his family? Did you know the decedent, or as the prosecution pointedly described Greek, the victim or his family? What is it you do to earn a living? Once even, are you sober? To which came the response, you mean right now? Do you consider yourself a political man? Have you read about this case in the newspapers? As the afternoon heated up, the jury box started to be filled.
2: Basically, what had happened is the two of them had had been friends were no longer friends, and they got into some sort of dispute. It's unclear exactly what led to the dispute. There are a number of theories as to to what uh, led to it. Um, but regardless, they start telling friends. So the victim, uh, whose name was Greek Crafton, starts telling friends, you know, that he's gonna he's gonna beat up the defendant. Peachy Quinn Harrison, these great 1800s names, Greek and (laughs) Peachy. (laughs) Um, And he says he's going to beat up Peachy Harrison, and Peachy then tells a friend that if he tries, that he'll kill him.
0: That's Dan Abrams. Along with David Fisher, he's written a new book on the Crafton murder case. It was a dramatic, even lurid case. Two childhood friends involved in a vicious fight that turned fatal. And the defendant had a lawyer you might have heard of.
2: So Peachy goes and borrows a knife from a friend of his to carry around with him because Peachy is much smaller than Greek. And Peachy was worried that Greek was going to come after him. So Peachy carries this knife on him for days. And then lo and behold, Peachy is sitting in a a drugstore slash, you know, diner, reading a paper with the proprietor. Greek's brother, John Crafton, is already there. Greek walks in, immediately walks up to Peachy, and a fight ensues. John Crafton gets involved as well. Peachy eventually pulls out his knife, stabs John Crafton, stabs Greek Crafton. Greek eventually dies three days later. John Crafton survives and becomes the key witness against Peachy um, in the trial. And this was a self defense case. So Peachy was claiming that he was in a reasonable fear of grave bodily d- injury or death, and that uh, that's why he used the knife. And uh, Lincoln was a co-counsel for the defense. And Lincoln actually knew the family, Peachy's family, for a long time. I think it's one of the reasons he took the case. But he also knew the victim. Right, the victim right. had actually worked in his
0: law office. So that's, it's pretty amazing. And then the, the it, a lot of it turns around a deathbed, not confession, but forgiveness from Greek uh, to the grandfather of the guy charged with killing him. So how could that happen?
2: One of the best-known people in the country at that time, a huh. preacher, was Peter Cartwright, right? And Peter Cartwright was also a longtime political rival of Lincoln's. They really despised each other. And yet he became a critical witness for the defense, meaning because he was such a well-known preacher, he was asked to go and counsel a Greek. It was unclear if he was about to die, but he was clearly, you know, not well and severely injured. And in the context of that conversation, he allegedly says, I forgive Quinn. His real name is Peachy Quinn Harrison. I forgive Quinn. I brought this upon myself. Now, in a self-defense case, (laughs) I brought this upon myself. You can't have a better comment than that. And there became a huge legal fight about whether that phrase should be admitted at the trial. And I think that was the most important legal argument. And in fact, Lincoln actually lost the argument at first. And became enraged at the judge right, right. i mean we have f- first-hand descriptions from people who were there talk about how angry lincoln was that he was almost climbing on the bench <laughs> people had never seen him so furious um, at the initial ruling eventually the judge uh allowed in that testimony
1: with no warning lincoln erupted springing from his chair and demanding in a massive voice that rattled the courtroom walls, Your Honor, we need to see this through, every last bit of it. Days later, William Herndon wrote, I shall never forget the scene. Lincoln had the crowd and a portion of the bar with him. He was wrought to the point of madness. He was mad all over. He was alternately furious and eloquent pursuing the court with broad facts and pointed inquiries in marked and rapid succession. When he was finished, Judge Rice glared at him. You finished? I am your honor. Thank you.
2: Meaning Lincoln had both the ability to focus on statutes and words and the importance of them, but in the end, his, his real strength as a lawyer was his ability to bond with people, that he knew how to how to talk to jurors. And in fact, back then, um, lawyers were permitted more to talk about personal experiences, uh, to kind of schmooze with the jurors. These days, that would be viewed as inappropriate um, in the context of an opening or a closing. Um, But then that's one of the things that really helped distinguish Lincoln, the lawyer.
1: Lincoln walked to the jury box and took in all 12 of them with a glance. He wished them afternoon and said hello to those five or six men he knew by first name. He was following the first rule of good criminal lawyering. He was building a relationship with the jury. He was just Abe, their neighbor, the man who shared their values and their lives, standing here hoping they could solve this sticky problem together. Years earlier, Lincoln had given practical advice about talking to a jury to a young man he was mentoring. Talk to the jury as though your client's fate depends on every word you utter. Forget that you have anyone to fall back on, and you will do justice to yourself and your client.
0: Well, and they schmoozed a lot. I was kind of taken aback when I read in your book that—and then the next closing argument was three <laughs> hours.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: well, look, in a lot of high-profile cases these days, you know, closing arguments can take many hours, but there's no question that that then a lot of it was, was schmoozing um, and was talking <laughs> to the jurors because, you know, remember that— that these are people who um, are are in a very discreet community. This is Springfield, Illinois, in 1859. And you have only white men of a certain age who were landowners. So you have a limited pool of people. Many of them knew the defendant or knew the victim or knew Lincoln. Um, so, So this sort of casual atmosphere, when people ask me, what is one of the biggest differences between courtrooms then and today? And one of the biggest differences is that they were just simply more casual back then, of course, in addition to having spittoons in the courtroom.
0: Dan Abrams is the chief legal affairs anchor for ABC News. He's the author, along with David Fisher, of Lincoln's Last Trial, the murder case that propelled him to the presidency. Today on Backstory, we're going to be looking at the legal career of the 16th President of the United States. Now, Abraham Lincoln wasn't the first or the last lawyer to hold the highest office in the land. In fact, there have been so many lawyers in the White House that it sometimes seems as though a background in the law is a requirement to be president. But it's fair to say that the White House had never been home to a lawyer like Lincoln before a backwoods lawyer who plied his trade in the circuit around Illinois, representing pretty much anyone who needed him. What kind of cases did Lincoln take on? What sort of lawyer was he? And how did his decades-long legal career prepare him to run the country? Later in the show, I'll be talking to Doris Kearns Goodwin about how Lincoln the lawyer transformed into Lincoln the leader. But first, let's find out a little more about the daily diet of legal cases that made up Lincoln's caseload. We just heard about the pivotal murder trial that helped propel Lincoln to the White House. But Lincoln's resume as a lawyer extended far beyond defending accused killers.
3: It would be easier to try and find a type of case that he didn't litigate. Um, but yeah, you know, ba- yeah, Back in those days, lawyers really didn't specialize as a rule because they just they, they couldn't earn a living that way.
0: That's historian Brian Dirk. He's written about Lincoln's law practice based on research from the Lincoln Legal Papers Project. They've uncovered thousands of documents about Lincoln's legal work. Dirk says Lincoln was a general practice lawyer who rarely litigated criminal cases.
3: About half of his cases were debt collection cases. Uh, Lawyers back in those days took the place of what we have now with credit rating companies and skip tracers and the like, and you'd go get a lawyer to collect your debt, and that's what he did, you know, probably about half the time. But he also did, yeah, he also did probate, did a lot of divorce. I was surprised at the number of divorce cases he handled. I mean, just a little bit of everything, petty larceny, uh, slander. The slander cases are a blast, by the way. I mean, our our ancestors could throw shade better than we ever gave them credit for, you know.
0: (laughs) In order to win these slander and larceny cases, Lincoln had to cater to a different clientele each time he stepped into the courtroom. Dirk says this is where Lincoln was more versatile and clever than people might remember.
3: This whole aw shucks, rail splitter, honest Abe thing, I mean, if you get deep deep into his practice, there's this great quote from one of his legal, his lawyer friends, and I, I forget which, I think it might be Usher Linder, maybe somebody else, but he said, he said, people who mistook Lincoln Force a simpleton would very soon wind up with their backs in the ditch. And I thought that was a really good way to put it. You know, you, you think you got this, you know, this this backwoods hick, and the next thing you know, he just won the case and he's walking away with a smile on his face. Lincoln Lincoln was very good at that. You know.
0: Uh, he used it. He knew that was the, the impression that people had of him, and he didn't care, right?
3: Oh heck yeah. I, I found I found <laughs> oh I didn't care. He he used it. You know, I mean I saw this <laughs> yeah, this one case where this guy says I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but this guy says, God, I saw a lawyer Lincoln the other day, and he looks like a complete hick. I mean, his shirt's undone. His boots are dusty. He looks like a farmer. Then I looked at the case, and the case was having farmers. And then I saw somebody else say, well, I heard that Lincoln was a hick, but he's dressed real nice. And that case involved a businessman. I think he he, he, he subtly knew how to manipulate his image to get what he needed to get in a courtroom. Absolutely.
0: So – was he able to build a reputation out of this, or was he seen as just sort of a kind of a lawyer dealing with small matters?
3: You know, if you you got to look at the practice over the whole 25 years. Um, when 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 he first started. Uh, you know, I think he struggled the first couple of years because he was partnered with um, with John Todd Stewart, uh, Mary's Mary's uh, uh, relation that um, uh, uh, Stewart went to Congress and kind of left Lincoln kind of holding the bag, so to speak. And um, he was struggling. And that's when he's has all these penny ante cases and all that. But then as he gets more experienced and as he changes partners, he goes to Stephen Logan and then eventually Billy Herndon, his last partner, he gets bigger cases for more money and then if you get into the like the mid to late 1850s he's litigating some pretty lucrative stuff especially for the local railroad so it gets better as he goes along yeah
0: so my understanding is that the lawyers would sort of travel a circuit together they were sort of um Living in the same boarding houses and eating th- together and traveling together—is uh, that right? First of all. Oh yeah,
3: absolutely. That's one of the one of the one of the most fun things to write about. You know, because you couldn't just sit in your law office, you know, and just wait for business to come to you. I mean, a lawyer still can't do that, you know. And um, so he, handled, he what, the, what they did was they had circuits. Where you'd have like you know uh, ten or fifteen counties, but only one judge because they were too cheap to buy a judge for every every county. So the judge would uh, you know saddle up twice a year. Usually they'd get like six or seven lawyers, including Lincoln, and they would travel from county to county. And they all the all the people in that county knew what day court day was. So they'd show up the night before. Next morning, some farmer might walk over to Lincoln and say, Hi, Mr. Lincoln, I'm Bob. I'm really hacked off on my my buddy Fred over there. I want my pig back or whatever. And then Lincoln would gin up a case and then they'd litigate it and then they would move on. And this was, you know, the backbone of of, of much of his litigation. Absolutely.
0: And so, he developed a good reputation among his fellow lawyers. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, now I, you know, they they don't look
3: upon Lincoln was not a legal innovator. You don't look at his cases and go. Whoa, Here was a Frontier John Marshall or something like that. You know? <laughs> right. No, it's nothing like that. But um, I, I, I concluded that he was respected by his fellow attorneys a great deal. And he must have been respected by his clients because he got a lot of repeat business. I mean, these people just kept coming back to him over and over. And that's got to tell you something, that they trust him and, and they like him. And, you know, as far as I know, while he was a lawyer, he was almost never accused of any legal impropriety or any ethics violations or anything hmm. like that.
0: Well, that's good given his uh, nickname. Did he have his eye on politics along the way or was he really submerged in the legal practice?
3: Oh, I, uh, both, you know. Um, I, I've read in some biographies that well, the law was just his pastime that he really wanted to be in politics. And while I think there's some truth to that, I think that's overstating it. I think he saw them as kind of meshing together because, you know, and think about the number of people this guy would have met riding circuit. I mean, I mean people said, God, everybody knows Abe, you know, and, and and that was the backbone of his practice. And then moreover, several of these lawyers and the judge, especially David Davis, whom he practiced with, were instrumental in getting him the nomination in 1860 for the Republican Party. So there's like a very, very intimate relationship between what he did as a lawyer and what he did as a politician.
0: One of the most controversial trials in Lincoln's career is known as the Matson slave case. Here, Lincoln represented the slave owner Robert Matson against an enslaved family named the Bryants. Now, Matson was from Kentucky, but he had a farm in Illinois and he'd often bring the Bryants up to work on it. So the Bryants sued Matson for their freedom because Illinois was a free state. Lincoln and his legal team lost the case, and the Bryants were freed. The trial is sometimes used to label Lincoln, the guy we know as the great emancipator, as a hypocrite on slavery. But Dirk says it's more complicated than that.
3: People mention the Matson case and say, yeah, look at the guy, he was a bigot. You know, he, he was sort of defending a slaveholder. Well, here's the thing. First of all, yeah over the over the course of those five thousand cases, a tiny handful involved African Americans in slavery. He didn't litigate many slave related cases. And if you look at all of the cases, not just the Matson case, they're all over the map i mean he also defended uh several men who were charged with felonies for aiding fugitive slaves you know he also tried to use the northwest ordinance to get a slave free he did uh legal work for his african-american lawyer billy the barber but then he also did the madsen case i mean you can't look at these cases and say oh there's the real lincoln no i mean you got to look at the whole thing you know and what he what he believed was look i'm a lawyer my ethic is to represent my client to the best of my ability. I mean, the story goes that the Mattson slaves, their lawyer knew Lincoln and knew he was anti-slavery and came over to him and said, hey, what are you doing on this side, man? And he said Lincoln looked really sad, and he kind of said, you know, I, I've already promised him I'm going to defend him. I can't turn around and drop this case now. I think he had a sense of legal ethics. I have to defend these people to the best of my legal ability. And And there is a legend that, oh, Lincoln really threw the case. I don't buy that. I think he did the best he could. But he's a lawyer and he has a professional obligation to do these things.
0: And that echoes in many ways what he said during the Civil War, which I have to obey the Constitution even as we are trying to accomplish these other things.
3: Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I don't think people adequately appreciate how hamstrung he was by the constitution and he, he couldn't just ditch it because after all the union represented the rule of law the rule of the constitution the whole argument was that the rebellion was the essence of anarchy if he abandons that he has very little moral standing especially with european powers like england and france who are watching what's going on
0: Brian Dirk is a professor of history at Anderson University. He's also the author of Lincoln the Lawyer. We'll hear more from Brian later about what Lincoln brought from his time in the courtroom to the White House. biographer Doris Kearns Goodwin's new book looks at exactly how Lincoln transitioned from a small town lawyer to a national leader. I sat down with her to discuss the lasting impact of Lincoln's legal career on his leadership style and character. Was Lincoln born to be a lawyer?
4: (laughs) You know, I think he was born to try to explain things that could be Um, understood by people. He was born to try to persuade people of things. He had a gift for language. I suppose that's the one inborn thing that you have. You have a gift for language and then you have I think he was born with empathy, uh-huh. another quality that could either be inborn or developed, meaning he could understand other people's points of view. He just could feel other people's feelings. And those things happen, I think, in allowing him to become a, a really great lawyer that he became. We forget it because he became president. We forget the lawyer part of him. Now
0: you tell, really, the, the heartbreaking story of his father leaving his sister and him and there in a cabin with dirt floor and sort of on their own for months. Uh, do you think that empathy comes from having been so miserable as a child?
4: No, I do think there was something about Lincoln's upbringing which was so difficult. I mean, he had only 11 months of full schooling, and he so desired to learn so that he had to scour the countryside for books and and get everything he could lay his hands on. And there was a sense in which he had such an appreciation for it. You know, when he got a copy of the King James Bible or Aesop's Fables, he was so excited he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. There was that sense of knowing how special it was. And his father kept taking books away from him, making him feel that somehow he was useless and, and lazy for not working in the fields. So he somehow began to understand what other people in his circumstances were feeling, but he also wanted to escape from that. So that was the imagination that allowed him to decide, someday if I work really hard and if I can educate myself, I won't be cutting rails or I won't be shucking corn the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, I think you show us it was a sort of a generalized kind of directionless ambition (laughs) that he had. Uh, It was not directed to the law very early, it seems to me.
4: Well, I think the law was a way of moving mm-hmm. upward in that society where he was. I mean, there, there were roots for ambitious youth, and I think one of them was politics and the other one was the law. And I think in some ways, you know, politics almost came yeah. first because he's only 23 years old when he decides to run for the state legislature in a little town of New Salem where he'd only lived for six months. It was an incredibly brave thing to do. But he even talks about his ambition then. He said, every man has his peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man and to and to be worthy of that esteem, which is an unusual thing for a young person to to put it in those terms, The something for the greater good rather than just for himself. But his partner and friend, who he had known in that area, was a lawyer. They helped lend law books to him. And I think he saw that that would be what he can do And it could mix with politics, as it did so well in that time and still does today. So do you think the law ever became a
0: goal in its own end for him? Or was it always a way to get that esteem that he acknowledged in in his early days?
4: You know, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I don't think it ever became something on its own, although Mm -hmm. I think he really enjoyed it. I mean, they said when he went on the circuit, two things would happen. One, he was a mentor to the younger lawyers. They said he was the one who always looked after them. So he had already established a certain kind of reputation, and he was willing to do everything he could to educate the younger lawyers, who he always treated with kindness. But even more importantly, the lawyers, when they would argue against one another during the day during these six-week tours, would stay at the same taverns at night. And when anyone knew Lincoln was around, they would come from miles around to hear him tell stories. He had perfected the art of telling winding story tales. And he would stand with his back against the fire, and then he would unleash these tales one after the other. And some of them were just simply Aesop's fables put in the form of a tale that he had loved so much as a child. But some of them were actually just funny, funny tales. And he honed that gift of humor and storytelling that would be his lifesaver, really, during the later years of his presidency, and what he would always be able to use when he needed to break up a cabinet meeting or quell somebody's anxiety. And then he was also still educating himself. So I think there's no question that mm-hmm. when he got to be a lawyer of more repute in Illinois, he was still moving toward politics because he was trying to understand the anti slavery movement, what was going on in politics, and he would study. You know, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, for the speeches that he would have to make. And then that moved him much more easily into the political realm. So the legal background, I think, was absolutely critical to his becoming a politician. And I'm sure I'm not sure I had fully recognized that as much
0: well, I didn't recognize this as much until I read your book. The other thing I discovered was that married to that storytelling impulse was this relentlessly logical approach, which people might not think would go together with storytelling. I mean, it's like, get to the point. We've got important business here to conduct. But I think you show us that he was, at the same time that he was telling these stories, um, working toward a purpose. And he, he he brings this relentless logic to everything he does. How does he marry those two things?
4: People would say to him, why do you tell so many stories? And he said, because people remember stories better than facts and figures. That somehow a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But embedded in those stories that he would tell, especially if it had to do with the legal issues or the political issues facing the country, would be a relentless logic. That's why he studied Euclid. That's why he studied mathematics. You know, when he was talking about the question of whether a person was black or white or tall or short, he made it a a logical thing of, why should we think that one person is better than the other? Suppose somebody's black. Suppose somebody's blacker than black. Suppose somebody's whiter than black. Suppose it, It was just brilliant to watch that logical movement. And he brought people with him. I mean, that was the key. He said, you have to start where the people are, and then you have to tell them where we came from, where we are now, and where we're going. So he would embed the arguments about slavery in the history of the country. He would embed the prejudices that people had in certain kinds of logical analysis. And altogether... But I think it was the force and the conviction of his person and how he came to believe so strongly in the need to not allow slavery to go to the Western territories, which was all that was really there in the 50s. And then the legal degree also helped him, the legal arguments when he was in the Stephen Douglas debates. And that's no question that that catapulted him into the presidency. You know, those those were really Legal arguments against one another. You know, six thousand people would be coming. It would sometimes last six to eight hours, and it would be a logical argument against one another. Philosophy would be there, history would be there, and the audiences responded as if it was a sporting event. I love listening to the audience reactions. Sometimes they would say, "Hit him again! Hit him again! Harder! Harder!" <laughs> as if they were part of the whole sporting event. And they were kind of marathons too.
0: You had to have durability as a an audience member as well as a speaker to last all those hours, right?
4: Right. The first person might speak for an hour and 45 minutes, and then there'd be a rebuttal for an hour and 45 minutes, and then there'd be another hour and another (laughs) hour. And at one point, Lincoln, it was great in one of the first big debates after Douglas had taken a, a substantial amount of time, and he knew that his part would then be running into dinner. So he asked intimately of the group, he said, would it be all right if we break for dinner now? And then I know you'll come back because Stephen Douglas will speak after me again. I'll give him an extra time so all of the Douglas people will come back and I'll have, my people here. And it just was great. It was this conversation intimately connected to the people in in the debate audience. And they did go on until like 11 at night. It was extraordinary starting in the afternoon.
0: Historian Doris Kearns Goodwin is the author of many books. Her most recent is Leadership in Turbulent Times. We'll hear more of my interview with her towards the end of the show when she reflects on how Lincoln's legal background defined his leadership style in office. While Lincoln the Lawyer changed the course of history, he didn't do it alone. Our friend Lindsey Graham—not the senator, but the host of the American History Tellers podcast—has a new audio drama. The podcast looks at how another lawyer, Edwin Stanton, who served in Lincoln's cabinet, fought to preserve Lincoln's legacy after his assassination. Lindsey, thanks for joining us on Backstory. I'm excited to hear about your new podcast— 1865. What made you focus on Edwin Stanton as your protagonist?
5: Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Ed. It's a pleasure. Um, 1865 is about a country in turmoil after Lincoln's assassination. And Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's adversary-turned-ally, is the character who steps up and tries to take control of a reeling and wounded nation. He is an incredibly exasperating
6: historical figure. He is simultaneously heroic and strong and fiercely intelligent. But he's also, at at times, morally dubious. That's Stephen Walters, the co-writer of 1865. He's a bit of a Dick Cheney figure, right? He he sort of assumes power that really isn't his uh, in the name of keeping the country together. He makes some really difficult choices. He declares martial law. He presides over the largest manhunt in United States history to bring John
5: Wilkes Booth and his accomplices to, to justice. And while Stanton perhaps seeks justice through unsavory means, Stephen Walters imagines that Stanton's loyalty to his deceased president is genuine and enduring. Stanton stands up in front
6: of uh, the who's who of Washington, uh, a man who's not that comfortable giving speeches. And in in this version of him that I've created, I'll read it to you. He says, I thought Mr. Lincoln a dreadful litigator, a useless man, and an even bigger fool. It was not the first first time in time in
7: my career... that I was wrong, and it would not be the last time I would underestimate Mr. Lincoln. Gentlemen, John Wilkes Booth is dead. But the cause which he represents did not die with Mr. Booth. Indeed, his actions have stoked the fires of rebellion all across the South and given hope to those who opposed the cause of liberty for which Mr. Lincoln gave his life. The battle between the states is over, but the war for the soul of our nation is just beginning. In waging this war, we must be merciless. I leave you tonight with the words of Mr. Lincoln himself. If ever the destruction of our nation must spring up amongst us, it cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. Let us heed his warning. God bless Mr. Lincoln. And God preserve and keep our sacred union.
8: You've done a great job there of capturing Stanton's commitment to Lincoln's legacy and and the emotions of that moment when the South is still chaotic. And that's Walter Starr.
5: He's the author of the book Stanton, Lincoln's War Secretary. Starr says that Stanton and Lincoln shared a similar upbringing, even if they became ideological opposites.
8: So he's roughly a contemporary of Lincoln. He's born in 1814 in Ohio. So like Lincoln, a Midwesterner. Um, Like Lincoln, he knows poverty in his youth. His father died when he was quite young and left a widow and no money. Um, uh, Like Lincoln, a lawyer. And like Lincoln, active in politics. But as you mentioned, an adversary, whereas Lincoln was a staunch Whig. Stanton was a staunch Democrat.
5: Stanton was prolific and had a lot of cases. One case that I am uh, fascinated by and really hope to, I have another podcast called American Scandal, uh, and, and this, this is perfect for, uh, f- for that show.
8: I know, I know where you're going. You're going to Daniel Sickles. Yes. Um, could
5: Tell us about him, his trial, what he is accused of, and how Edwin Stanton came to his rescue.
8: So Daniel Sickles, before the Civil War, was a member of Congress. He was seen as kind of a protege of the Democratic president, James Buchanan. Um, And uh, one fine day in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., in broad daylight, he pulled a pistol um, and shot and killed his wife's lover, who was at the time— The district attorney for the District of Columbia, he was – this was the O.J. Simpson trial of its age. Um, It was covered in excruciating detail in not just the D.C. papers but the New York papers and the Philadelphia papers. The courtroom was packed. Um, It's one of the first, if not the first case in which a kind of temporary insanity defense was run. Stanton would have – helped with that. But his key contribution, at least as you can read it in the record, um, is what I call the family defense. He gave a long speech, which quoted more from the Bible than court cases, talking about how um, the sanctity of the family and basically argued that in shooting his wife's lover, um, Sickles was merely defending himself and his family. And when I say it, it sounds sort of weak and pathetic, but it must have been effective because in less than an hour, the jury acquitted Sickles, um, and he was sort of carried out of the courtroom by the cheering crowd to freedom.
5: Lincoln, the lawyer, and Stanton, the lawyer, did cross paths during a patent case in Cincinnati. At this point, Stanton was already a celebrated, successful lawyer, but Lincoln was still just a small-town circuit attorney, And while Starr cautions that it may be apocryphal, according to some accounts, Stanton's performance at the trial in Cincinnati had a lasting impact on Lincoln.
8: Lincoln supposedly told a friend that he was so impressed by Stanton's closing argument, he had never seen anything so finished and elaborated that he intended to go home to Illinois to study law. So Stanton the lawyer, we're getting a picture
5: of uh, someone who is driven um, obstinate, and uh, and and likes to win. Those sound like qualities that that might have brought him into
8: politics. Unlike Lincoln, Stanton um, is not a candidate. Um, Stanton is more the uh, writing letters, um, organizing rallies, more of the back room rather than the candidate.
5: Is this a reason why Lincoln brings him into his cabinet?
8: That's part of it, but. He actually wanted a Democrat. Uh, He wanted to sort of send the signal that this was not just a Republican war. Remember that Lincoln is elected with less than 40% of the popular vote. He wants, if possible, to unite as many people as he can in the North behind the war. And then Stanton had a reputation as a man who worked incredibly hard and effectively, and... That is what Lincoln felt he needed in the War Department.
5: So we have two lawyers, both prosecuting a war.
8: How did they differ in their leadership in this time? Lincoln, sort of famously a soft touch for widows and orphans and and just ordinary folks. And Stanton, kind of famously short-tempered, rude, dictatorial, you could refer to it sort of as a good cop, bad cop routine in which Lincoln plays the good cop. Oh, I understand. But you'll have to talk to Stanton and Stanton happily playing the role of the bad cop. Um, no, sorry, that can't be done. Next person. But for
5: all their differences, Stanton and Lincoln shared a common lawyerly commitment to facts, precision, and reason.
8: Stanton is drafting the the program for this um, raising of the flag in Charleston, which they want to do exactly four years after the flag was lowered at Fort Sumter. Um, And so he sends a draft of the program uh, to Lincoln, and Lincoln writes back and says, you know, it looks fine, except I think you've got the date wrong, because I'm pretty sure that the date was, you know, one day before what you've got. And Stanton goes back by telegraph to Lincoln and says, Well, I understand that. That's when in the news came that Fort Sumter would surrender, but the actual surrender ceremony takes place on the next day. You know, nobody but two lawyers, you know, right as Lee is about to surrender to Grant, would take time to debate whether something occurred on the 14th or 15th of April. But two lawyers are willing to Spend a little bit of time. It's a, it's a friendly discussion, but a little bit of time to get the details right. To
5: what extent do you think Stanton really is, was faithful to Lincoln in, in his prosecution of, of Reconstruction?
8: <sighs> it's a big topic. In, in one sense, um, very faithful. Um, and Lincoln and Stanton were both you know, very concerned about the fate of blacks in the South, Uh, Lincoln, however, was also very concerned to bring back into the fold uh, Southern whites. Um, And indeed, just a couple days before Lincoln's death, there's, there's tension and disagreement between Lincoln and Stanton over this issue. And he felt very strongly through his whole time in the War Department that the Southern resistance to... Um, sort of occupation and reconstruction was a form of continuation of the southern side of the Civil War, that that to live up to Lincoln's legacy, the Union, the North, had to reconstruct the South into a new society, uh, not merely allow southern whites to kind of reimpose slavery by another name on southern blacks.
5: It's precisely this lingering question. What Lincoln could have achieved through Reconstruction and what it became in his absence. That influenced Stephen Walter's writing of 1865. We have some clues, we have
6: some ideas, but we don't actually know because he was taken uh, before his time. And I think Stanton felt that it was up to him to, to carry forward the core principles of Lincoln's presidency into Reconstruction. In many cases, irrespective of what Lincoln actually wanted. It's it's very strange that in the aftermath of a rebellion, that a spirit of generosity and a spirit of unification, which I think is well-intentioned on the part of the Union, uh, and certainly well-intentioned on the part of some Southerners, leads to a situation where the antebellum agricultural white power structure is immediately put back into place. And within years of the Civil War, the uh, officials from the South, who were Confederate officers, Confederate government leaders, including the vice president of the Confederacy, are seated in Congress. This tension between the rights of the states and the rights of the Union, the rights of the federal government, really are, are brought to bear in the, the Reconstruction era. And it's the freedmen, uh, the four million freed slaves in the South, who are trying to t- you know, take their rightful seat at the, the table of democracy, who suffer the most
5: in the midst of this, this turmoil. After the war, Lincoln, the former small-town lawyer who could connect with anyone, still believed he could appeal to the nation's better angels, that he could bring the country together to heal. But Stanton, shrewd, successful, and always a lawyer, believed that the Union's victory could only be fully realized with the full force of unforgiving and uncompromising justice. Walter Starr is author of the book, Stanton, Lincoln's War Secretary, now out in paperback. Stephen Walters is the co-writer of the upcoming audio drama 1865, which premieres on December 3rd on Stitcher Premium. I'm Lindsey Graham, host of American History Tellers.
0: Throughout this episode, we've talked about Abraham Lincoln's triumphs and trials in the courtroom. But as you may have heard, Lincoln the lawyer eventually became Lincoln the president. So what's the link between these two occupations of the great emancipator? Earlier, we heard from scholar Brian Dirk about Lincoln's law practice. I also spoke with Dirk about what Lincoln took from his days as a lawyer to the presidency.
3: There's several things. First of all, I think Lincoln learned how to pitch his speech to ordinary people, because when he's when he's when he's talking to a jury, he's got a box full of farmers. You know, he told his law partner one time, Billy Herndon. He said, "When you're talking to a jury, don't aim too high, Billy. Aim low, because the people up high are going to understand you anyway. It's the people down low that you want to make they, make sure they understand." And I think that gave him that. That that economy of language, his ability to say a lot with a few words, because he had to communicate quickly to a jury and get an idea across. So there's that. And then I also believe he learned conflict resolution. You know, I mean, he says himself, lawyers are at their best when they get people to negotiate their problems and they don't go into a courtroom. He's always working with his cabinet to work out compromises, to find middle ground, to find solutions. This was something he was excellent at. And I think he learned this while he's a lawyer.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting how sometimes looking back, we think that that may mark Lincoln as weak in some ways. But I agree with you that that's really his strength. You know, I think one crisis averted is worth two solved. You got that right. Absolutely.
3: <laughs> well, and especially when you look at these strong-willed, difficult people that he had to work with compare that to jefferson davis who couldn't work with joseph johnston for example because they just hated each other you know whereas lincoln 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 could work out a relationship and say hey dude you, you may not like me it's okay let's just do your job you know and i think that comes from the law practice of you don't get caught up in personalities you know i looked at some of the literature on modern lawyers and modern lawyers are told Focus on the solution to the problem. Don't focus on whether you like the client or not. And I think Lincoln learned that as well.
0: You contrasted him with Jefferson Davis. Could you sustain that a little bit? Because they do seem to be real different sides of the leadership coin. Uh, And and you describe some of this to Lincoln's law practice.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 really, I I I don't want to imply a. You know, an insidious relationship between like like, you know, Lincoln was light years ahead of Davis. I mean, David Potter, the historian, once said, you know, if uh, Davis and Lincoln had traded places, the South would have won their independence. Well, I really don't think that's true. Davis was not. Yeah. Davis was not a bad president. He had a lot of difficulties and he had his faults. The problem with Davis compared to Lincoln was Lincoln uh, yeah, Davis tended to believe in a brotherhood, in a fraternity. He had to be your friend. He I mean he stuck with these really awful generals. Uh, Braxton Bragg way past the point of reason because he kind of liked him. You know, Lincoln mm. never did that. And I think I think that's a big contrast that that you know Davis could have learned from. But it was it was ingrained in his personality because Davis was a West Pointer. He believed in the brotherhood of the army fraternity and that kind of thing. And sometimes that got in his way.
0: So I think uh, Lincoln would appreciate the fact that I would th- now, uh, not out of any sense of conviction, but out of sense of responsibility, uh, become the prosecuting attorney in this case. So this all sounds great, right? Is, is, is there a downside to his lawyerly background when he was president?
3: Um, you, you could argue I suppose that maybe he tried to negotiate a little bit too much during the war. I, you know, uh, the way the, his uh, response to the way Davis plan and his 10 percent plan for reconstruction, that was a very, very mild uh, plan. Uh, now, we don't know if he would have stuck to that plan because, of course, he dies right after that. But uh, you could argue that his, his desire to negotiate with people in good faith. And his assumption that everybody wanted to negotiate in good faith might have really been a difficulty, I think.
0: Earlier, I referred to Lincoln by his famous nickname, the Great Emancipator. Now, of course, that's because of his landmark executive order, the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, Doris Kearns Goodwin says the drafting of that proclamation was rooted in Lincoln's legal expertise.
4: In the summer of 1862, when the Peninsula Campaign had gone so badly, and he knew, he said, that we were at the end of our rope and something had to change. And he had been visiting the troops in the active battlefield, and he'd begun to see that the Confederates were getting an enormous advantage, military advantage, by being able to use the slaves on their side. And he knew that he had no legal way, no constitutional way to end slavery unless he could make it something that was a military necessity. And then, as commander-in-chief, he would have the power to say... If we free the slaves, they will no longer have the same benefit to the South. It will help the North. Military necessity allows me to do this. So he went to the soldier's home, which was three miles from the White House that summer, to really think through the argument, think it through legally, because that's really what he was trying to do. Do I have the power to issue this executive order?" And he finally came to the decision that he could do it on the ground of military necessity. So when he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, it wasn't intended to be a fiery document to use that gift of language that he could use so brilliantly in the Gettysburg Address or the Second Inaugural. It was intended to make the case, the case legally, that he had the power to do this. And that's true what Hofstetter said. It it was simply a legal document really telling the country, this is what we're doing. Of course, once it was issued, however, people understood what it meant, that all of a sudden in one document, you know, hundreds of years of slavery would be undone, that it promised a future without slavery. It promised to take the sin of slavery out of our country.
1: A proclamation. I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States of America, and commander-in-chief of the army and navy thereof do hereby proclaim that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever
4: free. And there was enormous rejoicing on the part of the people who were anti-slavery and, of course, the blacks as well. And there was enormous trepidation in the North, even as well as in the South. Legislatures were passing um, resolutions against it, fearing that we were only fighting for the Union and not for slavery as well. But Lincoln understood timing. He realized then that the timing was right, that the war had reached an edge where something had to be done. He realized that the soldiers had reached a point where they knew they needed help. And before that, only 3 in 10 were fighting for slavery, the rest only for Union. But he understood the timing so well because he saw ordinary people every morning because he never forgot the popular assemblage from which he had come. So it was finally the right timing on January 1863. And then when he signed that proclamation... Um, he put his own stamp on it by saying to his best friend who came to his side, you know, perhaps in this proclamation, you know, my fondest dream of being remembered after I have lived will be realized. But you're so right that the legal influence became so important to him because once the war was was at the point where it was going to be won, he knew he needed to put the Emancipation Proclamation, on more strong legal grounds. And that's why he went for the 13th Amendment. Because once the war was over, then the military necessity wouldn't be there anymore, and he would need some sort of deeper foundation in the form of an amendment. And then that became the lasting thing he gave to the country, even though it didn't fully pass until after he had died.
0: A theme of your book on leadership is that great leaders are made by great trials. Um, Had Lincoln experienced anything as a lawyer, you think, uh, that prepared him for some of these challenges as president?
4: Well, I suppose, you know, when you're a lawyer, you're going to lose cases inevitably and you're going to win cases. And I think what he had experienced throughout his life by going through trials, by failure, um, I think definitely prepared him for the presidency. Even in that first race when he ran from New Salem, and, and he did lose, as you pointed out. Um, then he wins the next time around. But when he lost the first race, he said, you know, I, I don't think I probably have a great chance here, but I've been so familiar with disappointment. I won't be too chagrined if the voters, in their good wisdom, do not select me. But then he said, but I will try again if I lose. In fact, I think I'm going to try five or six times. Only if I get so humiliated and dejected after six times, I promise you I won't run again. So I think inevitably, when you're trying cases... You, know, you learn what wins. You learn how to persuade people. You're going to fail in some of those cases, and you're going to just go on and and learn from your mistakes. I mean, that was what was so key to Lincoln. He liked to say, as long as I could learn from my mistakes, I can believe I'm smarter today than I was yesterday. But he also learned the camaraderie of, of working with a team by going around the, the county courthouses, and he built a team that way in the White House that were different from him, had different points of view, but he Almost somehow— Almost a team of rivals, you could say. Almost, you know, I might even think about that as a title for a book. Go free. (laughs) So, um, but it was so important because he knew that there were different factions in the country. That night when he was elected, he couldn't sleep. So he made that decision to put these three chief rivals into his cabinet, each one of whom was more educated, you know, more celebrated. Each one thought he should be president instead of Abraham Lincoln. And yet somehow he was able to, even though their opinions still differed on when to do the emancipation, if to do the emancipation, when he finally made the decision, none of them spoke out against it, even if they still had private reservations, which showed that he had created a team with a shared sense of purpose.
0: Well, I think you identify resilience as a key characteristic of a great leader. And I don't think anybody had more occasion to try that virtue out than did Abraham Lincoln as president.
4: Absolutely. And that resilience, again, is going to prove so important when he gets into the presidency. I mean, the many times when the Union was really losing the war— And when hope had to come really from within, within the country itself and within Lincoln, and then go to that next battle and then go to that next battle, (laughs) you know, and it it didn't end. I mean, we keep thinking that maybe Gettysburg had solved it. But even by the summer of 1864, when Grant was stuck in the East and hundreds of thousands were dead, the spirit of the North was really at a very low morale, so much so that the um, political bigwigs in the Republican Party told Lincoln, you'll not win this election. There's no way you'll win in November of 64 unless you're willing to have the South come to the peace table and make a compromise on emancipation. And that's the moment when that conviction really comes in, when the courage comes in. You know, he said, I'd be damned in time and eternity if I ever turned the black warriors back into slavery. The blacks had joined the army at that point. They go away disconsolate, certain that the war, the election would be lost. But then, of course, Atlanta happens, and the whole mood of the North changes, and he does win the election, but he wins it with union and emancipation intact. So that kind of resilience and perseverance and conviction and keeping his word, those are the qualities that were so strong inside of him.
0: Doris Kearns Goodwin's latest book is called Leadership in Turbulent Times. We also heard from scholar Brian Dirk, author of the book, Lincoln the Lawyer. That's going to do it for us today. We'd love to hear from you. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Virginia.edu. You may follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment.
5: Brian Ballow is Professor
0: of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.